0: Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters, where we left off with The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hitch had had worked his way out of out of a, out of a career slump and was was back on top. There's an old saying in Hollywood that you're only as good as your last film. And in Hitch's case, that was a good thing. So with that kind of newfound freedom that he had, he went in 1934, releasing The Man Who Knew Too Much to 1935, releasing the film that we're going to talk about today. Uh, He was able to work on a passion project, one that he'd always kind of wanted to do, um, a novel by John Buchan, who who Hitch always claimed was one of his biggest storytelling influences. And the story that he adapted was The 39 Steps, which in the film, well, really in the book as well, was a story about a man who becomes entangled in a dangerous plot of espionage, after a spy in the film, a woman, named—the pseudonym she uses is Annabella. And in the, in the book, it's a man. I just finished the book. His, his pseudonym is Scudder. Anyway, that spy in both the film and the novel get killed. And that leaves our hero, Hane, same name in both, uh, to clear his name somehow. And to have to go after this espionage ring. Now, the thing is, Hitch read this novel, The 39 Steps, about 15 years before he made the movie, which means he wasn't even really in the film industry when he read it. But when he did, he was like, wow, this would make a great movie. We, If, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to make The 39 Steps into a movie. The problem was then 15 years later, after he'd been working in the movie industry and he kind of understood what was going on and how to tell a good story for the screen and those sorts of things, he realized that the book, as it is on paper, wouldn't make the best movie. But he still really liked some of the ideas in it. In fact, he told Francois Truffaut, who we talked about last time, that he really liked the understatement of the highly dramatic facts in the, in the, in the novel. And so he went about adapting the same way he went about adapting almost everything else. He told Truffaut that his goal, and I'm paraphrasing, was to read it through once, latch onto the basic idea, and then go make a movie. In this case, man accused of murder that he didn't commit, chasing down a spy ring. It's a pretty basic idea. Now, we're going to talk a lot about story again today uh, for a couple reasons. One is because it's so foundational to understanding filmmaking. And on top of that, it really fits this movie and the challenges that Hitch had to overcome in making this film. Don't get me wrong. Just like The Man Who Knew Too Much, there's some great cinematography. There's some great editing and good acting, good, good direction on Hitch's part. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we will get to those as he continued to progress into a better and better technical filmmaker as we move on. But for this class, I wanna I wanna keep laying the groundwork on storytelling because Hitch felt it was so crucial. I felt it was so crucial, and I'm the one leading the ship. Darn it! <laughs> so let's go back to the Truffaut interview. Truffaut then asks Hitch about adapting books into films, and he he brings up kind of a rumor that was going along. Going around that, that, that Hitch should do an adaptation of Crime and Punishment. And that makes a lot of sense. If you've read Crime and Punishment, which you all should, um, it, it, it's not the easiest read in the world, but uh, it's, it's worth your time for sure. I had a lovely dear friend who, who made me read that, and I am forever grateful to her for it. If you've read the novel, then you understand why it makes sense for Alfred Hitchcock to direct an adaptation if you're directing Dostoevsky's Dostoevsky's story. I mean, a film we've already talked about, Blackmail, has some similar themes that go into that. And we're going to get into another story later on. I believe a 1948 film starring Jimmy Stewart. Uh, that also has some similar themes to Crime and Punishment. But... That's neither here nor there. Back to what I was saying. So he asks him, why haven't you done Crime and Punishment? And Hitch says "Hitch has two things. One is a smart answer, which is you should never take on a classic like that because you're probably going to mess it up. But the bigger reason is that, and again, I'm going to paraphrase his answer, a novel has many words, and to really express that cinematically, you'd have a five- or six-hour film because you're substituting the written language for the, for the language of the camera, the visual language. Let me give you an example from this film, The 39 Steps. You've got a story of a man on the run. There's fear involved. There's paranoia, fear of being caught. And that's easy to communicate when you can literally write down how a character feels at a given moment. That's harder to communicate visually sometimes. And it's not just a matter of being hard – it's sometimes not effective. There's a, a great book on screenwriting that everyone should read if you're interested in learning how to tell a story visual, or learning how to tell a story for the screen, written by Robert McKee, a book simply called Story. And he says that character is always revealed through decisions. I think you can see great examples of that in, in any movie you look at. Decisions are often made through interactions. Sometimes characters can reveal other things about other characters through the, through the interactions that they have. But in the book, The 39 Steps, our, our hero, Hane, is mostly alone for the entire time. And in a book, you can communicate fear by diving into the character's head and, and those sorts of things, but it's harder to show visually. I mean, yeah, you can use voiceover, but that's not nearly as effective as putting him in situations where he has to interact with other people. For example, in the film, there's this great scene on a train where the cops are closing in. Remember, our character is wanted for a murder that he did not commit. The cops are closing in on him. He's at a train station in the train, waiting for the train to move again. And in the same car, there's there's these two characters having a, a rather humorous but innocuous conversation First about business and then about the news. One man's reading a newspaper and he stumbles across a story about the murder that our hero, Hanna, is, been, uh, is the leading suspect. He hasn't been accused yet. He's the leading suspect. And so Hannay has to sit there, not giving himself away, as these two men talk about him. And then he asks for the paper and starts reading the piece on himself. And then peers over the top of the paper and sees these two gentlemen looking at him. And since we can only see their eyes, it, it looks like they're kind of... They're, they're watching him. We can literally feel the eyes on Hanay. Now we have built up the fear and the paranoia that is in our character's head by showing interactions with other characters. That's the difference between the written language and the visual language. Hitch always told people that it was better to show and not tell. This is a quote from from an essay just simply entitled Hitchcock on Stories, and it came from uh, Sidney Gottlieb's Hitchcock on Hitchcock, Volume 2. Uh, I talked about Volume 1 at length, ad nauseum, really, last time. Uh, but this comes from Volume 2. It says, We are making pictures, moving pictures, and though sound helps... That's kind of on the same ideas that I talked about earlier with uh, voiceover. It can help. And it is the most valuable adva- sound, is the most valuable advance the films have ever made. They still remain primarily a visual art. Now, you may disagree with that, but remember that Hitch came from, from the silent era, when you had to tell a story visually. You had no other option. And there's a lot of there's a lot of other filmmakers that would tell you the same thing. Filmmaking is a primarily visual art. Sound helps, but visuals are king. Uh, he also wrote that writing is about, talking about screenwriting, is about the visual. Plots need to be pushed forward by seeing, not telling. And that's kind of what I was talking about with the eyes watching watching our hero over the newspaper so what that leads to is hitch adapting the 39 steps in a way that he adapted everything else and this is why we're going to cover it today so that i don't have to talk about it again and again and again i can just reference this idea and you guys will understand what i'm talking about when you're moving something from one medium to another odds are you're not going to be able to do it beat for beat shot for shot word for word or whatever odds are You're better off adapting the material in a way that makes sense for the medium you're adapting it to. Orson Welles kind of discovered this uh, when he was running the Mercury Theater, which was a radio program back in the 30s. If you're not familiar, Orson Welles is one of the greatest actors, writers, and filmmakers of really 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, if you've seen the movie Citizen Kane, you have seen Orson Welles' work. Anyway, uh, before he was doing any of that, he was in radio, and he and his theater group or radio group decided to decided to do their adaptation of The 39 Steps after seeing the movie. So they all run out, they buy the book and read it, and then they're terrified to find out that there's very little that's similar between this book and this film. So then they have to go out and figure out their own way to adapt it. It's kind of a goofy little side note, I thought. So visual storytelling, understanding how to take written word, turn it into a visual word, essentially, or written language and individual language. Uh, But that's not all. Uh, Also in Hitchcock, on Hitchcock Volume 2, compiled by Sidney Gottlieb, there's an essay called Short Story, A Parallel. And in this, Hitch really breaks down an idea that that he discusses at length with a number of, in a number of interviews and in a, in a number of essays, and that is this idea of pacing. This idea that in Hitch's day, remember this is 1935 when the 39 Steps comes out, there is no home distribution. Uh, you can't watch a movie at home. If you're going to watch a movie, you have to go see it in the movie theater, which means that there's no breaks in the action. Uh, Unless the power went out in the movie theater, I guess. Uh, You just sat there and watched it from fade up to fade out. And that's different than almost every other medium that Hitch could think of. It was different than the play. The play has an intermission, but even more importantly, the play has set changes and scene changes. and This downtime between the action where the audience gets to sit there and consider what they've just seen. Uh, books are typically not read cover to cover. There's probably very few of us that have ever done that. Uh, typically, when you pick up a book, you read as much as you want or until it's time to go do the laundry or whatever, and then you close the book and you put it down. Then you come back later, you pick it up, and you have time to process what you read. The movie, especially in 1935, doesn't have that option. You sit down in the movie in a dark theater, picture comes up. You watch the next, I don't know, anywhere from an hour 15 to an hour and a half probably in that era. And then it fades out in dark room, lights come up, you go home. You don't have time while the story is going on to process or to to run over things or to really experience the movie in the same way. So the movie has to be paced in such a way to allow the audience some downtime, some respite some relief. We talked about that last week with this idea of comic relief. And we talked about it mostly with the idea of, of emphasizing the dr- the drama. But it also, it also can be there so that the audience can just kind of enjoy and take a break from, from maybe this terrible suspense that you've been building or whatever it may be. And so Hitch quickly realized that the greatest or really the closest parallel in terms of storytelling to the movie was the short story. You might not read a book cover to cover, but you're probably gonna read a short story cover to cover, something that's like, I don't know, under 100 pages. You might read that cover to cover. And what you realize is that short stories have mastered this idea of pacing, and that it's crucial to to allow your audience a second to digest what's going on. You can't just go and go and go and go and go you gotta take some breaks. There's an there's a ebb and a flow to the storytelling in a short story that might not be there in a book. So pacing is crucial when you're talking about adaptations, which means maybe you can't have all the action that takes place in a book. But more importantly, you gotta remember to use the medium that your story is going to be presented in to its full measure and not be beholden to the medium that the story, that that the source came from. Now, I want to go back to Truffaut for a second because we were talking about him earlier, and he told, and Hitch told Truffaut something very interesting that is really going to challenge um, a lot of you, especially if you're American. Hitch told Truffaut that he intentionally disregarded logic in the name of preserving unity, of emotion those are his exact words unity of emotion what in the world does that mean and why would you not tell a story that's logical he's not talking about telling a story that's illogical he's talking about taking creative liberties let me give you an example an example that i think we're all familiar with in christopher nolan's opus if you want to call it that some people do i'm not a well let's not get into my taste um, we're not, you're not here to listen to me talk about what I think of Nolan's, uh, universe. But if you are curious, hit me up on email or Facebook or something and we'll talk. Um, in the Nolan verse of Batman, in The Dark Knight, there is a scene in the climax of the movie where you have a convict who throws a detonator that would save his life out a window. And a lot of people watched that movie and asked, Why? Why in the world would he do that? Let me go back to Hitch's words here. In the name of preserving unity of emotion. That's why. The logic that we are familiar with in film and some of us from real life says that a convict would never, ever do something that would put his own life in jeopardy, much less do something that might very soon end his life. That doesn't make sense. But it makes sense in the story because what is Batman's words to the Joker after that happens? He says, what were you trying to prove? That everyone's just like you? Uh, I don't remember the rest of his line, but effectively, no, there's still good people in this world. And that's what Nolan wanted to say with that movie. So if the convict uses the detonator instead of tossing it out the window, you just lost the heart of the movie. You lost your unity of emotion. That's what Hitch is talking about here. And some of us, most of us, were willing to give Nolan a pass on that. We were willing to let Nolan's convict throw throw the detonator out the window window, because we wanted the good guy to win. And that's the kind of illogicality that we're talking about here. So for example, in the 39 steps, you have this spy ring that comes in and kills kills this spy. In the film, Uh, I mentioned her name earlier, uh, Annabelle Smith. They come into our hero's apartment and kill her, but leave our hero alive? Why? what what spy allows someone to live who might have information that could be used against them why would you let someone live who you now might have given reason to kill or might have given reason to kill you i should say for vengeance or injustice and things that doesn't make any sense but if we kill our hero off in the first 15 minutes of the movie then we don't have a movie do we also it's far more dramatic and exciting to see a woman come into his room and say, get out while you can, or whatever it is that she says, and then fall across his bed with a knife sticking out of her back and create the suspense that is going to drive the rest of the film. It's all about preserving that unity of emotion. Now we're going to get a little bit deeper into this idea of removing certain amounts of logic and plausibility for the sake of storytelling. And this is where some of us have trouble. I'll, I'll give you this is something that I've had trouble with for a long time. Sometimes things that happen in a story don't make sense, and that throws us because we're like, oh, well, that would never happen. Well, that may be true, but you're watching a fictional story. And that's exactly what Hitchcock told Truffaut. He said, plausibility for the sake of plausibility is a waste of time. If you want to analyze everything in terms of plausibility, then you end up doing a documentary. It's like asking me to be a representative painter. What is the ultimate in representative painting? It's a color photograph. There's a great difference between the creative making of a motion picture as opposed to a documentary. In the documentary, God has created the basic material, but you in the fiction area must create life. Now, in the creation of this comes matters of impression, expression, and point of view. And so long as it's not dull, I think we can do whatever we like. We should have all the freedom. That's one filmmaker talking to another filmmaker about creating a fictional world. And that's the thing that a lot of people forget when they're watching a movie. You're watching a fiction. Don't get wrapped up in all the details. That's not important. Now, if you've got plot holes that you can drive a truck through, that may be a problem. But if you've got a story that holds together in terms of this event leads to this event, leads to this event, then what's the problem? You're watching a fiction. You know, I was watching Back to the Future with one of my roommates, and he brought up some idea. I don't even remember what it was. He brought up something like, "Well, well, what about that? That doesn't make any sense." And I'm like, "Yeah, but we can't time travel either. So what's the problem here?" Sorry, little soapbox. Hitch and I are starting to see eye and eye, <laughs> eye to eye on this one, and uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, he wrote again in. Uh, in a different essay, uh, it's it's The Matter of Telling. This is also in Hitch, Hitch on Hitch, Volume 2, Sidney Gottlieb. I'll post the references in the show notes. He said, logic is dull. A lot of footage is devoted to making up a logic, and there's no drama going on at the time, at all. Hitch is famous for saying that drama is life with the dull bits left out. And that's the thing that we got to remember. What you're watching on the screen if it's fictional, is not meant to represent real life. It is, as he said, matters of impression and expression and point of view. It's life with the dull bits left out. And maybe some of you are, are, are working on writing or something like that, and you keep trying to figure out how to make it make sense, and hopefully this is freeing to you. If you're in the business of writing fiction, then write fiction. It needs to make sense. The story needs to make sense, but you don't need to be beholden to real life because that's not what you're making. And hopefully you can help me spread the word that, that fiction is fiction is fiction. Sometimes it's okay to break laws of physics. Sometimes it's okay to, to, to do something, for a character to act in a certain way that maybe doesn't make entirely sense in the real world but makes sense for that character. Maybe that's okay. This is incredibly challenging in the States I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because Alfred Hitchcock was still working in Britain at the time. But there's an interview on Spotify called a – literally called Highly Informative Interview with Alfred Hitchcock. I'm sorry. That's what it's called. Um, but uh, if you pick up the Criterion Collection of the 39 Steps, this interview is also there with video. It was in a BBC show called Cinema or something like that. Anyway, anyway this, this interviewer – is asking him about leaving this kind of logic behind or illogicality behind when he goes to the states. Now, Hitchcock, said the problem in America is the audience asks questions, which some of us might not see as a problem, but at the same time, I understand where he's coming from. Uh, Hitchcock dubbed this kind of thinking moronic logic. Uh, it's he he likened it to the questions children ask usually drawing from false assumptions or drawing from um, from false correlations things like that um, and he said that he had to leave behind a certain illogicality in England because the American audiences weren't ready and some may say still aren't ready for the kind of storytelling that other nations other cultures use this, this sort of storytelling where it's not about what had ever happened in real life it's about it's about the story what the story brings what emotions the story can elicit what things about life can the story teach us and does the story hold together on an emotional level so that's all i've got for adapting and storytelling with alfred hitchcock um yeah there's some things in The 39 Steps that maybe don't make sense if you're using that moronic logic that Hitch talks about. Uh, but The 39 Steps is still a really good movie. It's really fun. It's It's got a lot of those same things that we talked about with The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's got the locations interwoven into the story. It's got that humor contrasted with the drama and the suspense. It's got suspense. And it has a MacGuffin. Um... So, yeah, go out and find the 39 steps. Uh, if you're if you're really into this like I am, go out and get the Criterion collection Blu-ray. Uh, it's a phenomenal restoration. It looks beautiful. It's got some great bonus features on it. It's got some pieces from the Truffaut interview. got some pieces from that other interview that I mentioned earlier. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we're we're in a, a really fascinating period of Hitchcock right now. Where he's he's coming out of that slump. He's on the rise. He's doing great things. He's got a lot of classics that we're going to get into. Thanks for being a part of Hitchcock University today. Thanks for coming to class. Um, if you want to connect with 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 what we're doing here, um, I got a Facebook page called Hitchcock University. It's not very hard to find. I've got a Twitter uh, Hitchcock underscore U as in University. And I just opened up an Instagram that I have nothing on at this moment. But uh, hopefully by the time you guys get to this, maybe we'll have something there. Uh, Instagram is hitch underscore you. And if you want to email me, uh, I'd love to talk to you guys about this. I would love some feedback, see what you guys think about what we've been doing so far. Uh, You can email me at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Um... But, yeah, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter or on Instagram, send some emails, uh, however you want to communicate. That would be great. Uh, Tell your friends. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Um, Yeah, uh, give us a rating or review. That would be great as well. Uh, Thanks again for showing up to class. Thanks for being with us here on Hitchcock University. Thanks, guys. See you in a couple weeks.